Today's episode is sponsored by Potentially You. See this sexy placement in the show? One are over 100K, yes, I said over 100K listeners to hear all about you. Are you hiring for a company, got a badass product? This is your spot right here. Reach out to us at thebehaviorladies at gmail.com and we will hook you up. It's behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. And guess what, guys? It is episode 23. Two, three, don't spill the tea. All right, that is your rhyme of the day. Thanks to and Alan, getting, our producer. And it's getting shittier as the episodes <laughs> go on. So if you got some good rhyming words with any numbers, one through nine and zero, I guess, also, Send those rhyming words over to us. We will be happy to share that right in the show. So let's get started with a five-star review because we know we like some pairing with our audience before we dive into anything too deep. So let's get ourselves some compliments, Casey. All right. So I pulled this one from Apple um, Podcast Review. It's by Alexandra Aker. She says, the best. The best. I listened to these podcasts on the way to work while preparing for the exam. Thanks for making the content relatable, hilarious, and study worthy. Thank you, Alexandra. You must be studying hard. This exam is hard. And if we can provide you just a little bit of fun with some just relatable examples thrown in to the mix, that's our goal. So thank you. We love you and we mean it. Absolutely. So today uh, we are so grateful to have a special guest on who um is someone i really respect in the field uh so it's going to be a more she's really cool too she's really cool she too that's important also so we're gonna kind of focus back into the aba world a little bit but also just really talking about being ethical in general so it can really be applied to um any person professional with an ethical code that they're following um, so should you introduce our amazing guest today? I would love to. Okay. So our guest today, and by the way, because of this podcast, we just get introduced to the coolest people after cool people. Like and it's one cool BCBA we have on is like, hey, you got to have this person on. They're really cool. I met them here. And this is exactly how this connecting happened. So I'm so thankful it did. We have Anne Byrne. She is a BCBA with over two decades of experience working with individuals with autism spectrum disorders. Over two decades in this field is a BFD. Like you do not hear of that very often. And yes, she is on our show. And that is so cool because we are just freshly minted BCBAs two years out there. And when people like Anne want to speak to us, we are oh so freaking happy. Uh, Anne is passionate about the importance of professional development for students of behavior analysis, as well as emerging and seasoned behavior analysts. She has professionals on five continents and consults with centers serving individuals with autism all over the world. Yes, we said world. As the director of professional development at the Global Autism Project. Yes, that is that badass nonprofit organization that we spoke about that does these trips all over the world, helping individuals with autism. And she's been working with the Global Autism Project for over a decade. Anne is the co-author of the textbook, Understanding Ethics and Behavior Analysis, Practical Applications, available 
now to you at your local Amazon store located on your computer or smartphone. Um, This is, and one last thing, this is really big news for those of you guys who only know ethics as being Birch and Bailey, right? That is a great book, but this goes much deeper and beyond and hits on a lot of examples that as in the modern world that we're running into every day. And I highly recommend you get this book and it will be available in the show notes. That was beautiful, Liat. Thank you. So Anne's areas of interest include ethics, which is going to be a big topic today, staff and parent training, telehealth, which I'm actually super interested in, and dissemination of behavior analysis methodologies. So Anne obtained her BA from Binghamton University. Me too, Anne. By the way, I didn't. Hey, go Bearcats. Yeah, well, I only made it through one year there and I was like really depressed, but we could talk about that after. Um, it's and my the- husband's from there. <laughs> it's the weather. The weather is like super depressing. Yeah. So she also got her master's from Columbia University Teachers College, specializing in early childhood special education. She was a premier recipient of the Elijah Foundation Scholarship. She is currently in the special education doctoral program at the Fischler College of Education at Nova Southeastern University. Wow. She also has a background in musical theater and opera. What? And was lead singer of song at St. Augustine's RC Church in Park Slope, Brooklyn. She lives in New York City with her husband and three children. Welcome to the show, Anne. Hi. Hello. Now I'm remembering my husband made me put in my musical background on my LinkedIn profile. (laughs) I love it. It Do you want to sing something or... Not at all. <laughs> okay, cool. Just wanted to just wanted to throw it out there. This could be your chance at fame, you know, in case you want to go another direction. Even though you seem pretty vested in ABA, considering you yeah. just wrote this huge textbook. Yeah, and I'm really rusty at the opera thing. So, yeah, it'll be fun to see sometime. Uh, <laughs> fun fact: so we just kind of said it, but my husband's from Binghamton, mm-hmm. and he, um, I met him. I drove to Binghamton. And which is six hours from where we live currently, where I'm from, New Hampshire. Um, and I met him there and we fell in love pretty quickly. And my first thing was, we are never living here ever. Like, <laughs> I don't care what you have to do. If It took us about a year for him to actually move here to find a job. Um, but I was not going there. And I, I, we still oh, go visit. What time of year did you go hey, there? Fall Winter. is beautiful. Fall is absolutely beautiful there. I'll get, like that nature trail behind the school. And I remember like yeah. running around the brain on campus. Um, but, but I don't know. I mean, like, are you over fall living in New Hampshire? Are you kind of like no. a whole fall I thing? Love, like that? I love fall. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's. I bet, I bet New Hampshire fall compared to Binghamton fall. Yeah, Binghamton just it has this kind of gray over it that I mm-hmm. felt. Um, we were there. Granted, it was in the winter, um, yeah, and there are right. some pretty spots around there. But it's just funny, all like the wa- like the local Binghamton. Walmart. That was like our only activity we had to do when I went to school there for the year. <laughs> it was just, you know, what it was. A lot of New Yorkers, and I love New Yorkers, and a lot of people think I'm from New York because I'm like very fast paced and I get along with New Yorkers really well. And people from Long Island and Jersey, but it like made no sense me being this girl from Dallas going to Binghamton. It was just like. Yeah a pain in the ass to get there, a lot of response effort, like one flight a year out. And so I lasted for a year and I actually was in their ABA program, but 
only because I went there and I thought I was going to be um, doing a special ed program. And then once I'd already enrolled and moved into my dorm, they're like, we don't have a special ed program. The next best thing is ABA. So I did that for a year. And is that where you did ABA at Binghamton? No, I didn't start there in ABA. The, when I was there, the psychology department was much more kind of um, experimental. And so I... I had majored in psychology for a while and I ended up majoring in music. So um, yeah, I did do internships at the programs that they have for kids with autism, which in upstate New York, there is one of that was sort of my first foray into, wow, we really need to do better at providing services because there were kids from all over going to the school who couldn't go to their local schools. And, you know, the program is great, but, it the talk about response efforts like every single day to put your kid on a bus and like send them off to a school that might be like an hour away and it's it you know i really felt like this was you know a big big issue and i have to like that's still probably you know, I think if you ask everybody, every behavior analyst, what is the most important ethical issue today, you're going to get a different answer every time. But um, but one of the things that, you know, I'm really concerned about in terms of ethics is service access. So, and that's how I got interested in telehealth and working with the Global Autism Project. And um, because we're really kids who need, or families rather, I should say, families who need and want services can't always get them because of where they live or because of, you know, a lack of availability of qualified professionals. And this is a huge problem. It's a huge problem in the U.S. It's a way even huger problem internationally. Um, and the other problem that we have is that People who need services don't necessarily want them because they uh, hear about ABA being abusive, or they, um, or they meet a behavior analyst and they don't get along, or something like that. So, this, these are the two things I think that really affect our ability to allow people to access the right to effective treatment. It's not, you know, the right to effective treatment as long as you live in a metropolitan area in the U.S. It's not the right to effective treatment as long as I like you. It's the right to effective treatment, like, period. That's it. Yeah, to everyone, regardless yeah. of culture or of financial stability or financial um, means, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it sucks. Like, what I've seen, let's say you do live in Binghamton, New York, which I mean, they know they have that place, but okay, another random place. I don't know, random place, Tennessee. And let's say there's one place that does services and they know, hey, we're the only ones here. We could we could give half-ass services. So mm -hmm. I've seen this happen in places and it really pisses me off because, and these families, first of all, they don't know anything any differently, right? They're like, oh, well, I assume what they're doing is right. Right. Um, until someone who actually knows what they're doing comes in and you're like, what the hell are you doing? Like you are just having this kid show up every day and sit there and do absolutely nothing that's valuable for them. Right. So or they say, well, this is what ABA is. This is my only example. So this must be what ABA is. And this sucks. Then ABA sucks too. I mean, that's, that's the other thing that we need to be concerned about. And you know what? There is actually a study that I looked at from 2015 where they looked at families in Appalachia and they 
because of a lack of availability of services, these they trained parents by sending them video by mail and having them do I like kids just made like a shocked face. <laughs> I'm like, I know it was two thousand mail. They like VCR or, D or DVD? Are we talking or Blu-ray? That's DVD. <laughs> I but um, but they sent them video by mail and had them and instruction sheets and had them fill out data and then send video of themselves back doing the procedures by mail, and then they would send them feedback also by mail. So it was like, hey, you've been doing this wrong for a month. Right. Exactly. So it was. It was just astounding. Talk about delayed reinforcement or delayed I feedback. Know. And it's just, that's an issue, the immediacy of reinforcement, right? This was 2015, and I was like, oh, we've got to do better than this in terms of getting services to people who need it. Wait, 2015? 2015. Skype I, I, was around. FaceTime was around. Yeah, but the internet access where these people lived wasn't as great. Oh, my so gosh. Like, so part of it is an infrastructure issue yeah. as well. But, yeah, it was wild. So I do not have that citation at my fingertips, but I'll send it to you for the show notes because it was really. I'd love to read that. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a great article and it was really like a good attempt to solve a really complex problem. But good old snail mail. I mean, don't fix it if it's not broken. <laughs> right. Um, but or, you know, please fix it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but um, but it was a really great, you know, I I the the researchers are amazing for trying to you know, to solve a really serious problem, but this is a really serious problem. It really and, is, um, yeah. The lack of um, ability to reach certain people. And I think, not think, I pretty much know that the Global Autism Project, and if you could expand more on that a little bit, is that kind of what got you into really seeing these ethical concerns in other countries and, um, well, there Maybe. were a lot of concerns um, that I sort of didn't know about until I worked in other countries. Like that, um, so there's a tendency with a lot of international volunteerism to sort of like go, and this is actually, I shouldn't say international volunteerism, because I think sometimes BCBAs tend to do this anyway. There's, um, even though our field is very big on data collection and you know uh, you know addressing what's going on and like making sure that we're um, performing assessments there is a a tendency to kind of take things over and dominate the conversation so um and hashtag guilty oh hashtag working on it hashtag working on it everybody's done it and i think that there's like kind of a personality trait with bcpas and like i i know that um uh, so in, in some fields, they might be like, oh, this child will talk when they talk. And I'm like, no, I'm going to make sure that they really, really want to talk and that I'm going to help them talk and then they're going to talk. And so <laughs> there's a certain amount of like, you know, there's a certain amount of like nervous energy that's somewhat beneficial for, for behavior analysts a lot of the time. Um, and I think that we, our personality tends to be like, we're fixers. We like to, that's really reinforcing for us. So it takes a lot of self-control to just say like, let me see what's going on that's actually going well. And so my first trip with the Global Autism Project uh, was with a service partner that we had in Ghana. And I just spent a few days observing and there were um, kids and adolescents at the, you know, the older I get, the 
the looser my definition of kid becomes, but like, <laughs> but um, there were kids and adolescents at this center. Are we kids? I, yeah, I, I think you might be. I don't know. I'm 32. If I'm a kid, then oh that's amazing. God, you're, a kid. you're a kid. You're a baby. Um, <laughs> so, um, so at the center, they, there wasn't any, there was very little communication. There were very, there weren't any sort of augmentative communication systems and very few of the students there were verbal, but every single one of them was showing some independence in writing. Now, if I were creating a program, like out of whole cloth, I would never, writing would not be my top priority. So, but this was something that was really important to the staff. They were having some success with it. Every single kid had, even like as young as three, was, had some level of independence and at something like copying lines or something. And so I did what I would not ordinarily do. And I said, okay, we're going to put, you know, we're going to add some data collection systems. We're going to add some, you know, um, effective instruction, but we're keeping the writing because, because mm -hmm. that's working. And so um, significant, right? Yeah, it was really, I, every single one of them had some level of independence with it, which was amazing to me. So we added a lot of stuff, but we didn't take away anything that was working. And I think that, you know, really taking the time to say what is working here and, mm -hmm. you know, and then saying, what can we tweak? Um, and learning how to communicate with people. There are a lot of cultures where, I mean, I'm from New York, um, so we're not like this. You know, <laughs> New Yorkers will be like, no, no, you're completely wrong. Just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, thanks anyway. But working in cultures where people don't feel comfortable telling you I disagree with that is a little bit tricky because you have to kind of figure out if they disagree with you and then say, do you agree with that? And ask them directly. And then they're like, no. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. Well, now we can move on. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> so, um, and that's, you know, a really important skill for a behavior analyst also, like making sure that you can take no for an answer sometimes. Absolutely. You know, we, we have to work. I was um, just doing a, a, a webinar and one of the topics was consent. And I told a story. This isn't a professional story. This is like a 100% personal story. So um, when my daughter was about three years old, she had this habit of chewing her hair. So of course, with my decades of experience in behavior analysis, I just told her not to do it over and over. Because <laughs> that of was course. really successful. Um, so and one day she said to me, I just need to chew something. So I was like, well, thank you for the FBI. That was very helpful. And, <laughs> and report. It's the best right there for that. Um, and I said, okay, well, then you can have gum. And because gum's designed for chewing and your hair isn't. So we went on like that for a few weeks. It was great. She stopped chewing her hair. And then one day the babysitter, who was not part of this conversation with my daughter, said, I don't think it's appropriate for kids her age to chew gum. And I said, oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. And I, and and the baby okay, kiss my ass, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> no, not at all. I was like, okay, she won't chew gum anymore. And then the babysitter left, and like an hour later, I was like, wait a minute. And I thought, you know, like just the suggestion from someone was enough to not only make me forget that I had a really good reason for my daughter to chew gum, but also that it really wasn't any of anybody else's business whether or not my daughter chews gum. And I thought, wow, that was really easy. Like it was so easy for me to just like be influenced. Out the window and get so influenced by that. And and I really started thinking about 
trying to make sure that I wasn't doing the babies and you know, the babysitter came back the next day and I was like, Oh, haha, just kidding. Litter chew gum. And it was fine. But, um, like, and it really made me wonder, like, have I ever done that? Have I ever like had such an easy influence over someone? Because here I was, I was the expert. I was going to help them. And, and then accidentally influence them more than I thought I did or, or wanted to, or should have. So it's so important to, that's an interesting point. Yeah. To kind of think about that when you go into um, families, homes or oh, classrooms to, to sit back and just listen and um, see and observe. And then instead of just completely putting in all of your own, this is what you should do, blah, blah, blah. Like having that open conversation of what is working that you think is working and having those like hard conversations. Because what not everything we say is going to be right, right, and not everything we're going to say is going to be right to this individual family. Mm -hmm. And um, so, behavior analysts have a really interesting um, definition of culture, which is from Sigrid Glenn, nineteen eighty-eight. I cite it all the time. That's why I have that right. right on my <laughs> I was going to be like, oh my gosh. Um, but uh, so Sigrid Glenn uh, talked about cultural in terms of interlocking behavioral contingencies. So, you know, there are things that kind of like that sort of become our normal, right? Like we, you know, that, um, like just as an example, so I live in New York City, where like in New York City, people are literally on top of each other. Like, like this is like, it's- yeah. What part of the city just out of interest? Oh, uh, Sunnyside Queens, Sunnyside Queens. Queens, okay, cool. Yeah. So we have an apartment like that, like everybody does. And so when I hear about people who um, have their babies sleeping in nurseries, I'm like, really? How do you do? I just, I don't understand it because it's not part of my experience. There's nothing wrong with having your baby sleep in a nursery. It's that it's not my normal. It's someone else's normal. Right. So, and all the people with like larger homes are like, good grief. You had a baby in the room with you. And I'm like, you did it. So, <laughs> so, but it's just things become like what you are comfortable with uh, mm -hmm. through exposure. So these interlocking behavioral contingencies means that things are reinforced by the community until we all kind of know them and they feel like right and normal. So, you know, like nobody ever explicitly told me, hey, you really shouldn't like take your shoes and socks off in the middle of church. I know not to do, I've never done it, but like, like that's not something I needed to be explicitly told. It just sort of feels like right and normal. Right. And you you're know? following kind of other people's exactly. behaviors. Exactly. So um, you're going to have Sigur Glenn on the show and she's going to be like, that Anna's an idiot. That's not it. <laughs> but it's the idea is that culture is not something that's like innate to us. It's learned over a long period of time. And if you think about culture in that kind of broad way of like culture is a set of interlocking behavioral contingencies, then every family that you meet is a culture and like they have their own you know they have their own normal and they have their own what's right to do and um so i remember i was working with two families at the same time of very young children and in both cases the kids slept in the bed with the parents and um so one family i said to the mom i said is that okay with you like how do you feel about that 
and her she just like her face just like filled up with like so much joy and she said oh you know you'll you're you, you can't know how wonderful it is to to sleep with your baby in your arms it's just like because i didn't have kids at the time and she said it's just such an amazing feeling so that was really like precious to her the other family I said to me, I feel like I'm being held hostage by a two-year-old. She was like, yeah. I have to go to bed when he goes to bed. It's like, it. so, you know, I, so to come in with like, with a so-called solution for both families, be like, I think, you know, so much for your joy about having your baby in your arms, kick that kid out, like, as opposed to like, let me solve this problem for you that is affecting your sleep and is affecting your mood and is affecting your, you know, level of privacy and your marriage and whatever else, like that's, that those were two different needs and you can't address them with the same, you know, the same tool. No, everything's individualized for sure. Yeah. And I think what, it's interesting because I think also as a VCVA, we often listen because you said we are fixers. Um, so we're kind of listening to respond, right? Like, okay, right. so this is your problem. Okay. So here's the solution. Like we're not listening to listen, to hear the end part of, like someone saying, well, it's actually the best part of my entire day when I get to sleep with my child, <laughs> right? So I think it's really, it just like is a nice reminder also as you're saying this for us to listen, to actually listen as opposed to just listening to have our next response ready. Because I mean, right. I know me, I'm a, I, I, like we said, I have verbal diarrhea. Like I'm like waiting for the next opportunity to speak. And Casey and I, even like with the podcasting, we've literally had to shape our behavior of, you know, we always just wanted to respond to everything because we're excited and we like what people are saying and we relate to it and we connect, but we've really had to work on like, Hey, we're listening to someone else here. You know, we want to hear what they have to say and why it's important as opposed to just listening to get to the next question that we want to ask you. Right. So, it's tricky. It is tricky. And, and there is that kind of like fixer part of you that's really uncomfortable with it, especially at first. And, um, but it's, I like to say that in applied behavior analysis, the, the applied part comes before the behavior and before the analysis. So everything first and foremost has to be socially significant. And, you know, for little kids, this family is their social community. And then as, you know, kids grow and get more complex and they develop other social communities at school, you know, at um, recreational programs, you know, and then eventually at work, then those social communities change and they have other needs. But, um, but that, you know, it's got to be applied first before it's anything else. Amazing. Okay. So I have a question for you. Um, you know, I teach, or Casey and I both, we teach study notes ABA and we go through, which I'm so excited. I hope you're still coming to the ethics class we're going to have. So everyone I can meet you. I am. Which also happens to be like, a huge amazing feeling for me because it actually is that's why when I spoke to you and like I heard what you said I'm like I was really excited because I have to be honest like ethics is something I always dreaded um it's my worst class to teach I'd say because I don't I it's with study notes ABA we're uh, providing a lot of you know interesting ways to remember things and funny examples relatable whatever it is and with ethics, I, like there's a lot of relatable examples I'm sure we could do as well also. But the only thing is, it's not like one bit of information you need to memorize, right? There's not like one answer like, oh, these are the seven dimensions. Let me list them. Or, you know, 
here are the three main principles of ABA. Here, let me list them. It's like, what is the best answer? What is the best answer? And for me, I find it very hard sometimes knowing the best answer because there could be multiple things that are right. And even like talking test prep wise, but and in life wise, like what's the best thing to do? And also where to access help for this? Like where would you say people find this? Like most people... Um, and that's why I'm so excited you wrote this book because most of us only know Birch and Bailey. Like that's what you look to for ethics. And, but when you're in a real situation, you're like, well, how does this, like, first of all, what code is it that I should be looking under? And I don't know how it applies to this situation. Where would you tell BCBAs, BCABAs, RBTs, anyone in the field who is trying to understand the ethics to look for guidance? And obviously your book, which we will have in the show notes and everyone needs to get a copy, but aside from that, where can people find these ethical so, things um, answered? Yeah. So I do what like a, about Bailey and Birch. Obviously, his book is amazing. And I, but up until this point, it's been kind of lonely, like just there yeah. on the shelf. <laughs> and so it's the only person on the market right there. So I wanted to write this book, not you know, ne- not as a criticism or anything, but really like to keep it company. Um, it's, <laughs> it's so cute. That's a cute way to put it. I think that there, you know, there needs to be like more written about ethics. And I think one thing that I find is helpful for people who are kind of in an ethical situation is I talk in the book in the first chapter about um, sort of what we think of as goodness. And then there, there is like legality. There's the legal level of goodness, which is, you know, following the law um, and, you know, making sure we're fulfilling our legal obligations. And it's not that that's easy because it can get really complicated. You know, billing procedures are, are really complicated. Um, Being a mandated reporter is, so necessary and so difficult sometimes. Um, but there's there's that area. Um, and then there's ethics, which is, are you following the professional ethical compliance code? And then I think the trickiest one is our own personal morality. So sometimes what, you know, when people think they have an ethical question, they really have either a professionalism question or a moral question. Like it might be something that doesn't even relate to the ethics code at all. It just kind of makes them uncomfortable. So looking at the nature of that discomfort and saying like, is this really something that is addressed within the ethics code? Or is it something that just makes me personally uncomfortable for other reasons because you know my morality is formed by my culture like what my you know what my normal is and you know what and those all of those interlocking behavioral contingencies so is you know when somebody um you know uh uh, when somebody does something i'm uncomfortable with is you know is my discomfort does that really have anything to do with the ethics code or is that just me personally? And if it's me personally, then how do I respond to that? Because it's still real. It's just, you know, like, how do I respond to that in a way that addresses that issue? 
versus a legal one, which is a little bit easier to address. Exactly. I can't be calling the BACB about every little thing. I've heard about people who- um, You can't get in touch with them on the best of days. I mean- (laughs) Yeah. And also like this, and it's also like, I, you know, I respect the organization enough so that I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be calling them because like, this person has a rabbit in their classroom, go school. That's like, really? (laughs) That's my biggest, like, I want your, I want your life for 24 hours. If that's your biggest problem that you have to go to the BACB about a rabbit. Seriously, I want your life. (laughs) Do you ever, and I've used this before for my own personal, um, I've reached out right to, uh, the ethics hotline. Yeah. Ron Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very responsive. I mean, within 24 hours, he answered me and he actually put me in contact with someone else who I could talk to. And it was it felt like I was really supported in that situation. So. Right. And it's like, I've contacted the BACB about things, but their legal department does not answer hypotheticals, which is one thing. And um, so I was asking them like, well, what would be the case here? And I also reach out to other colleagues too. So um, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, ask colleagues that I trust, like, you know, like, help me, you know, help me figure this out. Help me peel this onion and and figure out, um, you know, what's, what's going on here. And that, and, and sometimes that helps too. Like, even if they say something that's not, you know, that isn't exactly relevant, you're like, okay, that's another way to think about it. You know, ethics is, you know, unlike, unlike, you know, memorize the seven dimensions. What's tricky about ethics is that, you know, uh, at this, uh, I think I told you this story, Liat, but I started my mentorship and, and you know, the my mentor was Bobby Newman said, what do you want to get out of, you know, the mentorship? This is what they called supervision way back in the day. And um, and I said, I want to know the answers. I don't want to be confused by cases anymore. And he said, well, I can't give you that. And but what the process gave me and what my experience gave me and what I hope I'll you know, be able to give other people with this book is better questions. So it's not about like, I know the answers. It's about asking better questions. So I that's- mean, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Just, and just, that, just that so you know, about. you've opened a can of worms. Casey and I will now be referring all ethical questions to you. So <laughs> just, just you know, you've been, know you've been warned. Um, we, we actually had an ethical situation earlier this year. Cause I mean, I know we're already putting ourselves a little bit on the line by calling ourselves the behavior bitches. Um, but also we got offered to have, you know, we have to pay for the podcast. So we got someone to sponsor an episode and they were like, you know what? Um, we're this new CBD product. Like we're happy to sponsor your episodes. Like we think it's a great young audience, like who you have, blah, blah, blah. Right. We're like so excited. We got our first sponsor. We're like, hell yeah, whatever. And then I don't know. Some part of us was like, this doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like, is this cool if we do it? You know, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, but is it different if it's hemp or if it's made from marijuana or, you know, so. Yeah, like CBD involves a lot of, you know, there is because there are some things about it that could be considered ethical. And then there are other things that could be considered like just making me like super uncomfortable. Um, so I, I, I think CBD, like, you know, is kind of uniquely like a, a lot of those categories. So what did you decide to do? I emailed the hotline. I talked right <laughs> with John Bailey. That's the, I, yeah. I really was like, you know, it's not, you know, it's legal. It is a legal product. We're not recommending right. it for people with autism. We're not saying it's not, a treatment. And you're also not labeling it as a behavioral treatment. 
Right. So but that, this is the takeaway. Really, yeah. We weren't doing it as a treatment. We weren't doing it as this, but the takeaway I got right from John Bailey and I so support and respect him. Um, he said basically, okay, like it's kind of that gray area where, you know, it's not evidence-based yet. Right. So if we're trying to, you know, promote evidence-based stuff where this may not be needs more years of research, but he said this and it stuck with me. He's like, you could do it. Of course. Like, as long as you are saying what you're doing, you're not recommended as treatment. You're not doing this. He's like, but like, are there other people that you could get instead? Like, yeah. like, you know, and I was like, yeah, we do. We have other people. And he's like, so there's no, like, just, you know, unless you're dying and you need that money, like so bad, basically he just said like over and over, we did a lot of emails back and forth. It was just like, do you really need to do it? And I'm like, no. Yeah. And it's like, was- exactly. There's a certain extent to which, like, if you're really that uncomfortable with it, then just no. Like, right. and, like it, do- and it doesn't have to be like a, you know, a, a life or death decision. And I think a lot of, you know, um, so a, a lot of behavior analysts um, are, you know, afraid to leave jobs where they're being asked to do things that make them uncomfortable. And it's not. And not for fine. I completely understand being afraid to leave a, leave a job for financial reasons, um, but it's not really, because of that. I hear it all the time. Yeah. It's oh, because my clients need me, and they, you know, they don't have enough help, and blah 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 blah. And but there are so many clients who need you, and you are not a tree. You do not have to stay where you are planted. You can get that. up and go someplace. Um, like so, you know there there's a time when, you know, saying no is totally appropriate. And it's, you know, like I would, I would agree with him like that, you know, if it makes you uncomfortable and you have other options, then certainly you could, could you get away with it? Yeah. But why? Yeah. Why try? Exactly. That's where I took my takeaway from it. Once I really, a, you know, we always, we talked about this a little bit earlier, walk around very, very anxious and, oh my God, am I ethically by, you know, engaging in this, even though I'm, it's my personal life or blah, blah, blah. And anytime you have those feelings of uncomfortability or questioning, it's, you know, nice to reach out to someone who has more experience than you, especially being a new BCBA and run it by them. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And it helps when you can talk it out with people. And I was like, I'm going right to the hotline. I like to go right to the source. And, um, and just that takeaway of, is it, do I, why do we even have to do this? We don't have to do it. It's making us uncomfortable. Then no, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people hate us because (laughs) like half of our reviews are like, thanks behavior bitches. I left my job. I realized I don't have to be around assholes anymore. And which I'm sure some companies are like, these behavior bitches have got to shut up. But a big part of it is like, (laughs) we get these messages from people all the time. Like, you don't understand. Like, I'm working at this company. They're doing this. They are like billing for things they're not actually doing, whatever it is. And, but I feel so bad for these families. And I'm like, get the F out. Like, get out. Like, you don't need to be there. And if, if your place is pissed at you because you said something, like, get out. And if you need to, like, like you are responsible for these kids. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need, like you have a license on the line here also. So if you are around this, I mean, but so I'm just saying that it happens all the time. So I think that's a good general advice for anyone listening. Not that we're trying to get more people losing their jobs, but it also could benefit places that are doing great things and that you could go be a part of. So, um, 
if you're working somewhere and you just see unethical practices over and over, what's this, what should someone do for like? Um, so what should they do? It really depends on what area of bad practices they're seeing. So if they're seeing fraudulent billing, um, that especially if like Medicaid fraud is a huge issue. And there were a number of, um, a big number of, of agencies in Florida that um, were caught doing all sorts of really bad Medicaid fraud. Um, so that really needs to be reported. The first thing I would do is report it to your supervisor or the program director or someone because my suspicion, I mean, I can't read anyone's mind, my suspicion, some of the some of the things that happened in Florida were so egregious that I'm like, that has to be a mistake, that somebody messed up. And then, and then didn't realize. So, um, so go to the director and say, like, if this is a mistake, it has to be fixed. We give have them that chance to fix it. Right. Give them that chance to fix it. Um, and uh, so that would be one thing I would. And if not, it has to be reported. Otherwise, you could be liable as well. Um, so. And if children are being hurt, you're a mandated reporter in that position. You have to protect the safety and health of the children. So if it's a legal issue that, you know, you have to you have to do whatever you can to fix it. One thing that's tricky about our ethics is that we're the ones who study it. We're the ones who have a commitment to it. And we're the ones who are really have some level of fluency with it. Uh, so if you're if the head of your agency is like an MBA or a psychologist or in some other field, they might not actually know what constitutes ethical and not ethical. So, um, so talk to them about it. Um, and, you know, if you're talking to business, the advantage of having business people run ABA companies is that they have a background in making sure that the business is sustainable. So everybody gets paid, everybody has a job, Everybody, like th these things, everybody has benefits. These are really important things. Yes, um, very the, important. <laughs> the disadvantage is that you do have to sort of talk to them about what constitutes ethical and what isn't. Um, and I think it's important when you're talking to anybody to know your audience. So if the unethical practice is that you have, um, you have too many clients and they're too far in distance away from one another and you're spending like three hours a day in your car or four hours upwards of four hours a day in your car going from client to client and you're being asked to do too much well then that those four hours that you're spending in your car that's potentially another like more billable hours that you're wasting you only get 24 of them right. so you know go to that mba and say i can't be doing this much traveling I, it is a waste of my billable hours to spend them in the car. Like, let's get a system in place where uh, BCBAs can have catchment areas. Yeah, like yeah, have like different regions or um, or you know, do something so that their course their courses can be closer together, so they don't have like four hours in the car every day. Or um, yeah, you have to really like form that as. When you're running the business, um, that's a huge thing for the team to think about when they are assigning cases like that is where do you live and what's your radius? Like, do we do a 30 mile radius for people? Right. Do we, it's a lot of planning. Uh -huh. 
And it's really important to do that planning. And a lot of BCBAs are burnt out because they spend all their time in the car. And I mean, if you know, if you run out of episodes of behavior bitches, what are you gonna do? That's are literally my next joke. I was gonna be like, I was gonna be like, well, at least Tell me so many times you can listen to the same episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Anne. So, um, but no, I mean that's that's a serious issue, and burnout is a serious issue, and burnout means that the the quality of your services gets lower and lower and lower, and you know, not adequate pay means you're thinking about the water bill instead of thinking about your client, and all of these things. You know, the most valuable asset of any company, particularly an ABA company, is their human capital. And they've got to treat that like it's really, really important. Otherwise, Holy crap, yes. Otherwise, they're, they've got nothing. I mean, that and that I think and for every bad company, for every bad practice, there are really good companies out there. So, you know, you can go, you can find a company that respects your time and your health and and your ethics the value that you bring to the company and part of you know and the ethics are part of the value you bring to the company like this is you know parents talk to each other parents refer agencies all the time and this is a autism spectrum disorder is no longer a low incidence disability but it's still a small community and people talk and you want to have a stellar reputation and the way that as an ABA company establishes a stellar reputation is the quality of their services and the quality of the people who provide them. And Amen. If you burn out, you burn okay. out people, you're, they're going to go. And so really treating people well is the best investment a company can make. And if you really, and, and training and training, and training and training, so important. Sarah yeah, Trotman as Slinger talks, or actually, well, Sarah Trotman um, talks a lot about staff, you know, keeping staff happy, right? And, yeah. um, you know, what you can do and involving them and creating it as this is a career field. This is not just a, you know, when you're a direct support, like there could be a career here. And how do we foster that um, teaching and training opportunities and so they can move up the ladder? and not just stay in that low level and burnout. Right, absolutely. And I think also, you know, like every organism learns best from reinforcement. I don't know if you ladies know this, but have you heard about reinforcement? <laughs> I did, I heard what it like, it's amazing. That? We can make it's anyone do anything. Um, <laughs> That's what blows my mind, Anne, and I'm about to get passionate right here because, you know, because of doing this study notes and, you know, behavior bitches and talking with different people, all the time I'm hearing about these poor practices or these clinics that are like overworking people or underpaying them or making them drive from Dallas to Burleson, Texas. And I'm like, you are literally studying applied behavior analysis about how to make people do different things. Like, why are they not practicing this within with their staff too? Like, I, I mean- yeah, it's yeah. like, are you not generalizing that what you're doing with these kids with autism also works for every single person in the world? Okay. Yeah. And also, by the way, it's in our ethics code um, that we should be using feedback that is likely to change behavior as supervisors. But um, but even aside from that, aside from, I love how I'm like, aside from ethics. Yeah, yeah. Screw ethics. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but aside from that, it's just, it's, 
like the, you know, I, a lot of us are really, our most potent reinforcer is the relationships that we form with families, the progress that we see um, kids make. But that, that reinforcer takes so much, it's powerful. It is so powerful, but it takes so much work and so, and so much time. So if you just look at matching law, the delay of that reinforcer is is huge. The um, the the effort involved is tremendous. The rate sometimes things work, sometimes we have to tweak. You know, like it's not it's not a guarantee. So um, and sure, the magnitude of that reinforcer is really great, but but if you can't count on the other things, so in the meantime, we really need to feel like we're doing a good job. We really need to cheer each other on and we really need to have the people who work with us cheer us on as well. And, and that And so just the behavior breakdown, I'm sorry. We cut I like I came in. You could finish saying what you were saying or I could give it a behavior breakdown. Give it a behavior breakdown. Break it right. down. Behavior breakdown. Okay, time for it. Matching law. What is matching law? Matching law is Behavior goes where reinforcement flows. So if you have, if let's say you have a housekeeper who has two houses to clean, okay? She knows the one client pays $200 for her to go clean the house for two hours and the other client pays $50 for her to go clean it for two hours. If she has the hashtag choice, she's going to go where there's more reinforcement available to the $200 house. The same is as Anne was saying with, people working at a clinic or RBTs or BCBAs in that case, right? If the payout is really low, or let's say you're working with a child with autism and you're getting, it takes a while to see some, you know, and you guys could fill in with anything along the way to, to get that gratification and that reinforcement of seeing a skill acquired. Sometimes it doesn't take that long, but sometimes it does. So matching law, if you're not getting that much reinforcement there, you're going to go look for reinforcement elsewhere or where you're getting it at higher rates. So what Anne is saying, and add in anything, Anne, because you're way more seasoned than me, um, that we need to make sure as a clinic or a, you know, or whatever the company is, a school, whatever it is, that we're also adding to that reinforcement level. That it's not just that the person's getting um, reinforced by seeing the child make progress also through, you know, giving them pay that they could live on, giving them time, giving them supervision. So they feel valued. Um, that is just, you know, it's so simple. A thank you is free and takes 10 seconds. Wow. That was great. It takes a second of your time and, and it saves you hours of having that same person crying in your office because they don't know what to do. Like it just, it, thank you takes a second and what it costs not to say thank you is so much, so much more than that. Yes, definitely. Yes. Amazing. Okay. So now we actually reached out to our listeners with some questions, but obviously we're a little selfish. So I have one <laughs> question for you first. No, we're going to, yeah. we're going to ask you um, a few of those, but I have one question for you first. Um, I actually am in one of the Facebook groups and there was, I saw, um, I guess any media is good media, so we'll take it. Um, someone had asked in one of the groups about using the word bitch. So such as behavior bitches, 
right? We are using the word bitch to refer to ourselves, And there was some concern from some BCBAs that we are not being professional and disseminating the science in a way it should be. And this is breaking some ethical code. So um, I know that my, my I don't GAF attitude could only go so far. So I actually want to ask your opinion. And you could be straight with us. We could take it. We get some negative feedback. And we like to actually use it. So I don't know what we'll change to if you do feel like this is an ethical violation. Um, <laughs> behavior booze or something. But um, so can you give us like if we are bringing any ethical issues or like what what are your thoughts on this? So, um, so the code about dissemination says that behavior analysts should be bringing the science of behavior analysis to the general public as much as possible. So um, what you guys are doing, since you're mostly talking to other professionals, is called internal dissemination. And this is like, you know, um, I... I don't know if you guys ever watched West Wing, but there was like somebody said, you know, we're preaching to the choir. And then Toby Ziegler says, that's how you get them to sing. So this is how you get people to sing. Like this is like a, a lot of times like the shot in the arm, the reinforcer that people need is to have, you know, these kind of like casual conversations. Um, I love the confessions of the behavior analysis Facebook group. Um, I like, I, I'm on there all the time, like sometimes complaining about trying to get school services for my kids or whatever. But um, I love that group. And part of what I love about it is that it is that kind of, it, it does feel like a community. And so that's part of what, so the value of the internal dissemination is, you know, it's really important. It's in the code for a reason. As far as whether or not you should say bitches, I think that this goes back to the, um, to what I was saying before, like there are things that are not, it does not say don't say bitches in the ethical code. <laughs> like, so, um, so it really boils down to, uh, is somebody uncomfortable and why is that? Um, and part of having, you know, a podcast like this is that not everybody is going to be comfortable with it. It's not everybody's jam. And or a cup you know, of tea, 23. But it's not going to be for everybody. And that's okay. You know, it's not only okay, I think it's good. To, because behavior analysts are not a monolith. I think that, you know, we, you know, consider the source, because I was just telling somebody that I'm, you know, that I'm rewarding myself at the end of this week with a pumpkin spice latte, because I'm a basic bitch. So I use it too. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> so, um, but I, I do think that if you use like a certain phrase that you're going to make some people comfortable and uh, some people more comfortable and some people less comfortable, and that's okay. And that's great, actually. Um, I remember when I was uh, mentoring with Bobby Newman, I, he had some situation with the school and he was talking about the, the, and it was just a case where the principal of the school was just like 100% egregiously wrong. And then he was called in to consult. And, and I said, Bobby, how did you not say, he hates when I tell this story, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing it here. Where we're already getting bad feedback. Thank you, Anne. So, uh, but I actually find, I think that this story was some of the best advice I ever got. So I'm on a one woman mission to prove to him that he's actually a wonderful mentor. Um, but, uh, and I said, like, how did you not say, what are you guys using for brains? And he said, you know, if somebody hires me, they're hiring somebody to say, what are you guys using for brains? And, and he was like, if they hire someone else, they're hiring somebody to finesse it a little differently. And, you know, 
I remember I met another behavior analyst who one of his jobs, he was a consultant with um, a school district in Louisiana where all the schools were threatened with being shut down and the, and the judge ordered a consultant to come in and shape up their program. And I said, wow, do you have problems with compliance? And he just looked at me and he laughed and he said, no, because I tell them I'm getting a paycheck either way. It's your paycheck that's on the line. So do what you want. And, <laughs> and I thought to myself, I, and like my personality is a lot softer. So, I mean, I do really well in certain contexts, interdisciplinary teams, like pretty soon everybody's doing ABA and loving it. And, the, you know, uh, so I'm really good at that. But I know that with my personality, I'd walk into those schools and, and I'd be like, okay, what do you want to do? All right, well, what do you feel? <laughs> and all of those schools would get shut down. And then what would those kids do? So, I mean, I think that they're, I think it's really important to be yourself. And because people need exactly who that is. Not all of the people, but there are a lot of people out there who need exactly that. And I think it's, I think it's great, you know, I was driving down the highway a couple months ago and I saw a sign and it just rang true. It said, um, you're not pizza. Not everyone is going to love you. I was like, oh, I like that. So you know what? We're not pizza. Not everyone's going to love us. Yeah, but our true. mission here is always to empower and support. And we have so many dedicated female listeners and we're not ever that term, you know, is not used derogatory. It's not used as an insult. And it's we're all not calling in- you it. And, and by the way, one of my favorite books ever. And it's going to sound like a dumb, basic bitch book, but it's a really brilliant book. And it's called Why Men Love Bitches. And I read it years ago and I tell everyone else to read it. But it actually speaks about a bitch not being a bitch, someone who's mean or terrible. A bitch being someone who's like an empowered woman who does, you know, they does themselves. Like doesn't cancel what's important for them to go cater to every single other thing, which I mean, I fall into the category of that too sometimes. But when we made this podcast, we actually said, there's already great podcasts out there um, for, you know, behavior analysts who are looking for some research in the field or something along those lines. So we said, we want to reach people who aren't necessarily behavior analysts. We have a lot of people listening who are nurses, um, psychiatrists, other fields, and we're bringing behavior to, to them in a relatable way. So that was our goal with it. So Thank you for giving us the feedback yeah. on that. I we mean, can- context, I'm going to quote Meryl Winston because I love what he says about context. So context is everything. And if you're walking your dog and cleaning up after your dog, that's fine. But if you don't have a dog, then you're just like a guy holding a bag full of poop. And that's weird. So like, <laughs> <context> weird matters. <laughs> exactly. And this is our, you know, our podcast for like just to, you know, kind of let loose, let go of the everyday kind of structure that you're in and have an outlet for people to just um, come listen to some stuff that they're going to learn, but also have some fun. So thank you. Do we have a couple other ethics questions for you? I had one quick question before we even do this, because I actually unfortunately (laughs) have to wrap this episode up earlier than I want to, because I have a Tutoring group. We're gonna have anyway. to do a part two on this. I actually. I think. know. So my question is, what, like, you, this, you're the genius of this book, right? Is that you interviewed people in the field for each chapter, right? For each code. That's what mostly, makes this book yeah. different, right? Yeah, and mostly, but I also interviewed people out of the field, which oh, wow. um, was kind of fun. And um, so, like, there's a, a chapter on uh, the behavior analyst as an employee. 
which so part one is like the code. And then part two, I took every role that behavior analysts generally play. And I wrote a chapter about that in, and sort of using the fourth and fifth edition task list and saying, like, here's how we can navigate our professional behavior. So um, for the chapter on being an employee, there were a bunch of teacher strikes going on. And I was like, and there was a lot of buzz on Facebook that I noticed people were like, is it ethical to participate in a strike? Is it like what, you know? And so I, um, I interviewed the president of the Illinois Federation of Teachers. And I talked to him about like what collective bargaining actually is and like why, you know, why it's important and is it ethical? And so, which is, so it's like a lot of people in the field who are amazing, but also a lot of people that, you know, are kind of outside of my own area of expertise. And it was, so that was really cool too. I love that. Then I have one question to follow up with that on and Casey, we will let you go. Um, so, cause Casey and I were recently at this tech Saba conference in Houston mm -hmm. and it had come up with the ethical code of accepting gifts, oh, even accepting, hey, hey. <laughs> I love ex this even, <laughs> even accepting water. Okay. And I remember them saying, cause you're saying you're speaking with other Profess, uh, with other professions about their ethical code. And I remember Suzanne, one of the speakers at our, um, at this conference was, or maybe she was talking to me on the side actually after and telling me, you know, I, I used to work at the BACB. I think it was absolutely crazy that you can't accept water from a client or from a parent or whatever it is. And she was like, and actually, if you look at a doctor's ethical code, it says that they are they are even allowed to accept like someone's entire inheritance, except they should maybe re they should maybe think about not accepting it if there is a um, like a a quote like a a child <laughs> to the parents or something. <laughs> and so I'm like, that is a completely different thing. Like this is like accepting someone's inheritance, and I can't take a bottle of water. So can you? touch on this a little bit like what yeah. can someone do if they get a gift or a some a kid draws them a picture what's the deal with that to me it always seemed weird like I always took the picture to it's be honest really weird um and I think that you know like going back to our ethical code is for us and not for anyone else I think that it can get into awkward situations now one way to prevent gift giving is to communicate at the outset before anybody gives you a gift like as part of your contract when you're starting a case, say, you know, like I don't accept gifts, gifts aren't necessary, don't bother. But, um, so that's one thing and, and everyone's like, just do that, problem solved, la la la. Um, but that doesn't always solve the problem. And actually there, um, there was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm about this, um, that when we hear no gifts, uh, like our, most people's history of reinforcement is that you give a gift anyway. Uh, like nobody wants to go empty handed to a birthday party. And so no. even if you say no gifts, that first of all, what is going to be interpreted, first of all, people are, are, have a history of reinforcement with giving a gift anyway. And secondly, how people interpret what a gift is might be different. So like, oh, this isn't a gift. This is just, I just made, I made Christmas cookies and I'm giving it to you. Or like this, you know, that's, that may not feel gifty to them. It may feel like an exception. So like, to me, a gift is a Valentino bag or something. You know? <laughs> so I'm like, and water is a primary reinforcer, right? So like if I'm in a client's house and I need water, I yeah, am going to take a glass of water. 
Well, I would argue with you that maybe you shouldn't be using it as a reinforcer because it's sort of like a human, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a, just a need, just like an un yeah. unconditioned, like I just need it because so, like, my I, mouth is dry and I'm going to die. Like, and, can I have water? Yeah, and don't die is the bottom line. <laughs> remember nothing else from this podcast. Remember, don't die. Um, so the BACB newsletter in May of 2015, which I know because that's another thing I cite all the time. I um, love your brain. I love your brain. You are like a cider McCider, Steve. I'm writing everything down for the show notes. I'm like, okay. I'm quoting so, it all. Okay. So, um, in May 2015, they kind of clarified the position on gifts. And I like to dramatize this a little because like, I, that's how I like imagining it in my head. Um, so the uh, so we do have some anecdotal data that gift giving could be problematic. So they have this one case where somebody, uh, the accusation was that a BCBA had abandoned a client. And through the investigation, the family said, I can't believe they did that. This is all from the newsletter. I can't believe they did that. You know, how could they when, you know, they, uh, when we've done so much for them. And then the BACB was like, whoa, 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 hang on. Did, what did you do for them exactly? And then it turned out that the, that this BCBA was going to family parties and vacations and was treated like one of the family. And it was all like, so it wasn't just like a, here's a handmade card. It was a lot more than that. Um, it's a multiple is, relationship as yeah, well. So, I mean, there is an, you can make like a, like an incrementalist argument. Like it started off as a small thing and then it was one thing after another until this multiple relationship kind of evolved. Um, so we do have that anecdotal data. My concern is whenever we're looking at the BACB's data, we're, we're missing something just for the nature of the beast. And it's not the BACB's fault and it's not anybody's fault. We're missing data from people who reject ABA because they find it objectionable. So that's all, you know, the people who really believe in ABA are the ones who are going to report stuff to the board. The people who believe that ABA can be better than this, they're going to report things to the board. The people who believe that this is ABA and it sucks are not going to report to the board because why would you like that? They're like kind of part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so one thing we don't have data on is how that can harm a, a relationship. But the BACB in this newsletter did clarify, look, you know, there is, you really need to evaluate. You're not only allowed to, but encouraged to think about intention of a gift. So if you really feel like this is a, you know, like a quid pro quo kind of thing, like, oh, I'll babysit your child so that you can come to the set. I've had parents say like, oh, bring your sick kid. And I'm like, no, I'm not bringing my sick kid to infect your whole house. Thanks. Like, that seems like an idea that will be really bad tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> but you know, and, and, and the intention is they're just trying to help, but um, but there could be unintended consequences there. So the BACB does say that you can consider the intention of a gift. So if a, if not accepting a gift would be more harmful to the therapeutic relationship, then you can accept it. I mean, not a, not a car, not a vacation, not housing. You know, let's not go nuts. But let's uh, say someone ordered you a custom cup with your name, Liat, on it from Etsy, right? Like, they were so proud to get my name custom on it. There's no other Liat they're going to give it to. So it, I think it actually would be more harmful. Yeah, it would. Yeah, in that case, it would be more harmful to the, you know, relationship. Now, in some cases, what I recommend to supervisees is saying, oh, my gosh, this is so 
Thank you so much. This is so thoughtful. Of course, you know, I like you never need to do this. And like really making that point again, like this is not a relationship where um, where, you know, you have any sort of obligation to make me happy. Um, but, you know, like clarifying that to them. But in that case, especially if it was, you know, Liat <laughs> on a cup, I would I would probably be more. Either of you, Casey or Anne, you'd be fine to find another, you know, there's potentially another BCBA or RBT out there who might have that name. But me, it's like <laughs> context, True, right? Yeah. All about context. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes I might say, you know, like if it's if it's something I might say, like, is there a charity I can donate this to in your name mm -hmm. that, you know, like that is there, you know, is do you have a favorite? Like if, you know, if somebody's giving you money or something, I might say, you know what, this is really unnecessary and very sweet. Um, I I could donate this in your name to a charity that that you believe in um so or something like that there you know there are certainly compromises but you do we are encouraged to think about that what the effect would be on the therapeutic relationship so now we have a question from one of our listeners who wrote this in she said what do i do when i'm at a client's home the mom interrupts and administers magnesium and melatonin during the sessions if the client is quote unquote hyper even if we are ignoring a behavior per the behavior plan. What do I do? Okay, so this is a kind of a complicated situation and it involves a lot of stuff going on. Um, one thing I would definitely ask is if those supplements are being given under a doctor's, under a doctor's guidance. So in order, like you definitely want to rule out any kind of medical or biological factors. And you also have to make sure that the child is safe. So magnesium um, in the kind of high doses that, um, that have, there is some evidence base for magnesium, um, but it has a lot of side effects. So, you know, talk to the parent, first of all, talk to the parent about whether or not their pediatrician is aware and is monitoring this, the giving the medication. Second, um, so if you're ignoring the behavior, um, I assume that the parent has given consent for this program at some point. So you may want to revisit that. Um, it's, it's a really hard thing for parents to say, no, that's not going to work for our family, but we have to be ready to work with that. Um, and if there is room to make some sort of modifications that would make the parent more comfortable, you should be ready to do that too. Um, and the third thing I would think about, and this is in the fourth edition task list we have under K02, um, it says analyze the contingencies of those who um, carry out behavior change programs. Now, in this case, the parent's not carrying it out, but we still have to think about analyzing contingencies. So when I talked before about Sigrid Glenn and the interlocking behavioral contingencies, one of the clearest examples of an interlocking cont behavioral contingency is a baby cries and then the baby gets picked up. So the antecedent for the baby is like some discomfort or boredom or hunger or whatever, um, or being cold, and then the baby is reinforced the crying is reinforced uh when they're picked up but the 
contingency, the three-term contingency for the parent is this aversive condition of their baby crying, and then they pick up the baby. So while there's positive reinforcement going on from the perspective of the baby, there's negative reinforcement going on from the perspective of the parent. And for the record, I fully support like picking baby. I think it's deep in our biology to do that. I think that if plants would cry, I would water them and I wouldn't have dead plants. So, like, so <laughs> the, the loudest cave baby got the most care and was most likely to survive. I definitely think there was like a, there's an evolutionary element to that. To that. Yeah. So, um, so one thing you can think about is the contingencies for this parent are probably um, that she hears perhaps from the other room or perhaps she's witnessing what she interprets as hyper. Um, there may be an anxiety response on their part and then they deliver this medicine and they feel like, okay, now my child's gonna be better and then there's some relief from that anxiety. So one thing we could try and do is address that situation. Try and make whatever is this parent is defining as hyper. And cause if it's quote unquote hyper, I'm not sure you like, my kids are pretty hyper. So, so when right, I was it's not very hyper, operational. Like, yeah, yeah, it's not really operational. So really talk to the parent about like, what is it that makes you feel like they need the, um, the magnesium and the melatonin? Um, especially the melatonin is generally given for sleep. So that right. I find particularly like iffy. Um, so um, <laughs> that's, I mean, you don't want them falling asleep. Yeah, absolutely. So, so talk, I would say your first bet is really talk to the parent about like, well, what, what about what you're saying is hype? What about what you're calling hyper concerns you? What can we do to address that concern? And is there something that we could do um, that would make you more comfortable with this process? Uh, like, because if you're ignoring a behavior, the, the most powerful thing, uh, um, for behavior analysts is understanding what an extinction burst is. Like understand I was about to say, shouldn't you let the parent know as like an antecedent to what it's going to look like? Because I mean, I have a brother with autism and I remember my mom being like so embarrassed if let's say like he was getting ABA in the house and he would start biting and attacking when he was three. I mean, now he's 22, but, um, you know, and then she feel like she needed to go get involved, which essentially would be reinforcing the behavior when they were trying to, let's say, right. Like not give him attention for it. Um, and so I think as a parent, they might, you know, they're more concerned probably also for the therapist there. Right. And they're like, well, I don't want to seem like I'm not involved at all or not trying to help them out if my kid's straight up attacking them or beating the crap out of them. So I, I would think that that would be like one good antecedent approach as well, just to. Absolutely. The, yeah. The parent should understand that you've got this all under control and, um, and really you know, have like a very friendly, calm conversation with the parent, like, and, you know, smile the whole time and, you know, and really communicate, even if you have to fake it, that like, this can all be worked out and this can all be resolved. Um, and I, I like to say that behavior analysts have to be like, um, uh, like flight attendants. So if you're on a flight and the and there's turbulence the person next to you is allowed to say holy shit did you just feel that but if the flight attendant says it you're like oh my you're like calling all your loved ones on the air phone like oh goodbye all this. like that is too scary you're looking to the flight attendant to see if they are calm absolutely you're calm you're calm so you really need to you know make sure that you're 
you know, communicating to the parent, like this really is okay. You know, like he's, he's not, you know, he is safe and he is cared for. He is happy. He is healthy. He is safe. He's loved even in the room with me. And, and that is, you know, that might help the situation a little bit. That is a beautiful answer. Okay. And last question. Um, and we're definitely going to have to have you on again because like, this is not actually the last question we have. Um, so, um, last question someone wrote at lunch, my BCBA supervisor withholds my client's chips and uses them as a reinforcer for sitting nicely at the table. This is the only food my client eats as he is very selective with different foods. And as a result, he gets no lunch. What should I do? So this is someone who is an RBT. So this is an RBT. Um, definitely tell your supervisor that that is his lunch. And that's, you know, it is, it is both unethical and illegal to deprive a child of lunch. So you're, that definitely has to be brought to the attention of the BCBA that this is the, the food that he eats. So um, if, if she is working on food selectivity, if she is doing something that she feels justifies withholding chips, um, then she should be able to explain that to you and explain how he's getting nutrition otherwise. Um, if that doesn't work, if the problem still continues, then you need to go um, to your BCBA's supervisor and address it with them. Because it's really, it's, that's a real human rights violation. The kid has to eat. It's, um, it's unfortunate that potato chips are kind of what most of us think of as a snack, but that's, that's their calories. That's their nutrition and they have to eat. Girls got to eat. Yes. Girls got to eat. All of us have to. Yes. Me a little too much. <laughs> Food is good. And also, um, I just think, and not to say with what you just said, but it, it could be difficult at times because sometimes you have to question what someone who is a higher authority than you is doing. And that is like a huge issue. But also, and I, I just, um, what, and just to close that, as an RBT, are they held to the same ethical standards as a, let's say, BCBA? There is a newly released RBT ethical code. Um, and it's basically like the code used to have like RBT in a bunch of spots. And now they kind of like pulled out all the relevant stuff for RBT. It's not like a huge change, but it's like a, a new document that kind of cuts, trims the fat of what RBTs need to know. But that would still be, that would still be something that first try and resolve it with your BCBA. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've had people say things to me and say like, I don't think we should do this program you know, for X, Y, Z reason. I've been like, oh, you know what? Good point. Okay. <laughs> so well, me too, because also that's our first set of eyes often, right? Like yeah. a, a lot of the times, like these aren't just only quote unquote RBTs. These are like the eyes, the ears, the people who yeah. are the most important who are applying these programs. Yeah. They are the point of communication. So absolutely they should be. And, you know, I've had people I, who came to me looking all nervous and said, you know, like I, um, there was a speech therapist who came to me and he was looking all nervous. And, and there was a program that I was running with a kid who had a lot of digestive issues. And, um, 
and one of the programs that I was running, the, the kid was getting food at other times, but I was running a, um, also working on vocal communication with food as a reinforcer. And the speech therapist said, I don't think we should do that because I don't want to like have, you know, like I want to make sure that the kid's getting enough for nutrition. And I was like, oh, okay. I appreciated it. I always appreciated it because like, no. I can't possibly be with the clients as much as I would love to be because I have responsibility of multiple clients. So right. I love, I actually love it. And I would say seek out a supervisor who, who values you also, who could teach you, but also values what you are doing. I think that's also just like a very important for a good relationship. And when finding a supervisor, to make you an awesome BCBA leader. Right. Yeah, and this is, you know, like they should be relying on your eyes and ears there. Like you are the main point of communication between the client and the client's family and the BCBA. So um, that shouldn't be just a BCBA dictating to you. That should be a BCBA who's like ready to listen and know what you know. I love that. Okay, and we have so many more questions, but not enough time because we do have some data on that the actual attention span of listeners um so, I so look forward to a part two we will we will definitely be doing a part two if you're in the collective you'll be seeing Anne on the 11th i think uh for That's our it. ethics class Yay. and i'm just gonna sit back and chill in my star pajamas that i'm wearing for this podcast right now so <laughs> Anne could just take it away during that class <laughs> anyways Anne, thank you so much for coming on oh it was my pleasure thank you Anne. oh my pleasure literally my pleasure I would love to like pick your brain more like outside of the podcast too. Just, I'm so excited to read your book and learn about you more. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's been fun. You make ethics sound way more interesting than I had ever learned them in my classes. That's just rules. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You guys could find Anne's contact information in the show notes. And thanks guys for tuning in. As always, subscribe to our content. Leave us a five-star review. Thanks. Love you. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Cause guess what? We don't know shit with that, but we have Alan at pretty easy podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit. When we don't even know what he's doing, he sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work, it doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar, we just book him. And he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm -hmm.